I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27 for our New Testament scripture reading. And I'll, I'll ask one of the men if they could get me a bottle of water. I might need that during the message. Thank you. Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 22 and reading through verse 54. Let us give heed to the word of God as God himself speaks to us. Pilate asked them, What should I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all answered, Crucify him. Then he said, Why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. All the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him, took the staff, and kept hitting him on the head. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away. To crucify him. As they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon. They forced him to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. After crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. Then they sat down and were guarding him there. Above his head, they put up the charge against him in writing, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? 
when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick, and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked, and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city, and appeared to many. When the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. I invite you now to turn to the book of Psalms and to Psalm 22. While I will just be preaching on the first 21 verses this morning, I would like to read the entire psalm. Let us hear God's holy word. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him, since he takes pleasure in him. It was you who brought me out of the tomb, out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Don't be far from me. Because distress is near, and there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions mauling and roaring. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord, don't be far away. 
my strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen. You answered me. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. I will give praise in the great assembly. Because of you, I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare His righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what He has done. Let us pray. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning seeking to truly enter into your presence and knowing that you have promised where even two or three are gathered together in your name, there you are in their midst. We pray, O Heavenly Father, that your spirit would truly open our minds to understand our hearts to love and embrace our wills to obey and follow you in devotion all the days of our life. Use your word, O Lord, to convict us of our sins. Use your word to comfort us in our trials and struggles. Use your word to raise our hearts up with joy and thanksgiving for all your mercy and your presence and your wonderful promises to us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Psalm 22 opens with the most agonizing cry in all of Scripture. King David cries out to his God, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance? Had God abandoned David? Had he left him to care for himself? No, God had not. But is it not our experience that when God does not answer our prayers, when things go badly for us, when we face great difficulties, we quickly conclude that God has failed us. 
perhaps even conclude that God is angry with us and has abandoned us. As a result of the seeming abandonment, the first 21 verses of this psalm show us my first major point, which is David's fear of abandonment. The structure of these first 21 verses is that David repeatedly alternates between cries of despair and pleas for God's help. The cries of of despair are filled with the words, I, me, and my, and the pleas for for help are filled with the word, you. Verses 1 and 2 present David's despair of abandonment by God. Despair that he had been abandoned by God. We've already read verse 1. Verse 2 says, My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. Notice how easily even King David, who had seen God do miraculous things for him, even King David was quickly unsettled when things were going badly for him. And is it not true For us, too, our insecurity and our anxieties quickly multiply when we find ourselves in a desperate situation. This reveals how weak our faith in God truly is. Our hearts are completely unsettled and even terrified. But what we need to do is to remember what God has done for us in the past. What we need to do is to trust in Him now to do what is good for us in every situation. In verses 4 and 5, David moves from despair to pleading God's mercy, that God would be merciful to him. He says, but you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. David calls to mind that God is a holy God who delights in the worship and praise of his people. And God has lovingly responded to his people's cries for help throughout all time. He calls this to mind and he reminds God of the mercy he showed to his covenant people. Perhaps David had in mind God's provision of a sacrifice in the place of Abraham being told to go and offer his son Isaac there as a sacrifice. And God provided a ram for him to offer in his place. Perhaps he has in mind God's deliverance of his people from slavery and harsh bondage in Egypt and from destruction by the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. Perhaps he has in mind God's provision of water and the bread of manna in the wilderness to keep his people alive. Perhaps he has in mind God's victories that he gave to Israel against Jericho and against all the nations in the promised land. Notice David's threefold mention in verses 4 and 5 that God's people trusted. They trusted in God. They trusted. They trusted in God. And the threefold affirmation that God rescued them, God set them free, and they were not disgraced. 
But as we remember these wonderful deliverances that God gave to those who called upon Him, we should also recall that God gave the deliverance at the moment it was needed. Not before they were pressed against the Red Sea with no place to go and the Egyptian army bearing down upon them with their, their fierce chariots. But at that very moment, God opened the sea. At the very moment that it was needed every time, after his people were sorely pressed, sorely pressed, which had the effect of revealing whether they really did trust in God or they did not trust in Him, at that moment, God delivered them. In verses 6 through 8, David confesses his despair of being abandoned by all. He says in these verses, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. In verses 6, And seven, David says that he is scorned, despised, mocked, sneered at, and rejected as they shake their heads at him. In verse eight, he quotes the very words of those who ridicule him. They refuse to help him in his troubles. And they tell him to go go to his God for help. Is not all of this what leads David and very often us too to state as David did at the beginning of verse six, I am a worm, I'm not a man. I'm no one. I'm of no value to anyone. David is stating that he has no honor. He has no reputation. He has no respect from anyone. Should the praise that others give to us and cause us to feel, and that causes us to feel good? When we are, you know, should the praise that others give to us, when we are doing something that is sinful and wrong, should that cause us to feel good about what we're doing? No, it should not. But we often take it that way. I'm, I'm okay because people think I'm doing well, I'm doing good. Should the ridicule of others, when we are doing what is righteous, should that cause us to fall into despair no it should not but we often respond that way we must remember that it is not what other people think about us that matters it is what God thinks about us and what we are doing that matters in verses 9 through 11 David once again moves from despair to cries to God He is here pleading God's election. He says in verses 9 and 10, It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to you, to God at birth, and you have been my God from my mother's womb. David reminds God 
that God elected him, that God chose him, that God selected him to be his child and to care for him from the very beginning of his life. God brought him safely out of the womb. God gave him a sense of peace and security with his mother. God claimed him as his child from the beginning of his life. And God was David's God all through David's life. Providing and caring for him before David was even old enough to understand that God was with him. Verse 11 forms a bookend with verse 1. David prays, don't be far from me. Because distress is near and there is no one to help. He is pleading for God to end what David perceives to be God's abandonment of him. He pleads for God to help him in his need. David throws himself entirely on the mercies of God to hear him and deliver him. But David's struggle with despair is not yet over. In verses 12 through 18, he shows us his despair of life itself. In verses 12 and 13, David depicts the people who oppress him as strong bulls. Strong bulls with horns who have encircled him and intend to gore him to death. And then he depicts these people, these oppressors, as lions that roar and intend to tear him and maul him to pieces. But if the physical harm he fears has not taken place already, Nevertheless, the harm of his spirit has. He says in verses 14 through 15, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax, melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. David's heart is overwhelmed with fear and despair. There is no strength of spirit left in him. He is like water that is poured out on the ground and is formless. His heart, which here stands for his will and determination, has melted like wax. His strength has dried up and become like brittle clay. His tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth, and he cannot even respond and say anything to people about the situation. He concludes with these horrifying words, you put me into the dust of death. He views his life as over. God has not delivered him, and soon he believes his body will lie in the ground and become dust. In verses 16 through 18, David portrays his oppressors as dogs, that surround him to tear him apart, and then as robbers that pierce his hands and feet with a sword and beat him up so that his bones all show from the bruises. And then they take all that he has, even stripping him of his clothing. As the blows that fall upon him become overwhelming, David despairs of life itself. But now in verses 19 through 21, David once more turns from despair over the outward circumstances 
to pleading God's faithfulness. He prays, But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen. When David prays, don't be far away, he echoes his prayer in verse 11 and again prays for God to end what David perceives to be God's abandonment of him. The prayer in verses 19 through 21 also forms a chiastic structure with verses 12 through 18. In those verses, he portrayed his distress as consisting of bulls, lions, dogs, and piercing all of which threatened to take away his life. And here he reverses the order and prays for God to reverse him from the death threatened by the swords, dogs, lion, and wild oxen. He prays for God to undo the oppressions that have fallen upon him. He prays for God to reverse the curse of sin in the world. The final Hebrew word of verse 21 is anitani, which means you answered me. Many translations make it part of the preceding phrase, but I think the CSB has rightly identified it as standing by itself and as being the phrase that separates the first half of the psalm, which is a lament that God has not answered his cry, from the second half of the psalm, which is his praise to God for his answer. All of verses 22 through 31 express David's Praise to the Lord for hearing his prayer and delivering him. In the second half of the psalm, David's lips are filled with thanksgiving to God and his sense of abandonment is erased. He will proclaim in verse 24 that God did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. But the consideration of verses 22 through 31 must wait for another message. There are many more wonderful things for us to observe in the first 21 verses today. As we read Psalm 22, we need to realize that we are standing on holy ground. When Christians first read this psalm, they immediately recognized the many verses that occur in the fourth, in the four gospel accounts of the passion of Jesus Christ. This psalm is quoted more often in the New Testament than any other psalm. Psalm 22 has been called the fifth gospel account of the crucifixion of Jesus. This is because God inspired the events in David's life and inspired the very words of David as being prophetic of the suffering of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
A large amount of what David says about himself in this psalm is metaphorical, even hyperbole. Not fulfilled in any literal fashion in the life of David. But the amazing thing is that when we examine the accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus in the New Testament, we see that not only did Jesus take up the very words of this psalm upon his lips, but that the words of this psalm were fulfilled in a very literal and precise way in his life and in his death. This brings us to my second major point, which is Jesus Christ's suffering of abandonment. It is interesting that when Matthew applies the words of Psalm 22 to the passion of Jesus, he ends his account with the suffering and death of Jesus, with Jesus quoting the first verse of Psalm 22. Matthew spends most of chapters 26 and 27 showing us how Jesus was despised and rejected by men. And then he ends the account of his suffering and death by showing us how Jesus was abandoned by God the Father himself. In Matthew 26 and 27, Matthew shows us how Jesus was rejected by everyone. He was rejected by Judas who betrayed him. He was rejected by a mob sent from the religious leaders to arrest him. He was rejected by all his disciples who deserted him and ran away. He was rejected by the Jewish ruling council who charged, that was charged with rendering justice, who in instead said he deserves death he was rejected by his disciple Peter who earlier said even if I have to die with you I will never even if I have to die with you I will never deny you but Peter later feared for his life and swore in an oath I don't know the man he was rejected by all the people of Israel who cried out crucify him he was rejected by the Roman governor Pilate who said, I, found no ground, I find no grounds for charging him, but then turned him over to the mob. He was rejected by the soldiers who stripped and beat and mocked him. And by the soldiers who literally fulfilled Psalm 22:18 by dividing Jesus' garments among themselves. Here, you can have this, you can have this, you can have this. And, and then casting lots for his tunic. He was rejected by the religious leaders and by the criminals on each side of Jesus who literally fulfilled the words of 22, 6 through 8 by shaking their heads at Jesus and mocking him and quoting the very words of this psalm in their rejection and ridicule of Jesus as recorded in Matthew 27, 38 through 44. The gospel accounts also show how 22, Psalm 22, 16 was fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. Psalm 16 uh, Psalm 22, verse 16 says, For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and feet. John 20, 25 tells us that Thomas said to the disciples, 
If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hand, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. And one week later, the resurrected Jesus appeared to Thomas and said, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. This is an amazing prophecy because Jews did not practice crucifixion. Jesus was put to death in a way that was foreign to Jewish executions, yet his death exactly matched this incredible prophecy in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. 16. This prophecy also occurs in Zechariah twelve ten, in which the Lord himself, the Lord God, amazingly says, they will look at me whom they pierced. But what is most astonishing is that the God of the universe would come down to earth and take on human form, and then that he would be rejected and despised by all. But all of this was part of God's plan to bring salvation through his death for our sins and resurrection, and to bring that to all who trust in him our resurrection to life. And the crucifixion ended with Jesus quoting the words of Psalm 22.1 in Matthew 27.46. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? While this was only true for David in the sense that it was his perception that God had abandoned him because God had not answered his prayer. Yet this was literally true in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The Father who from all eternity had intimate and perfect fellowship with the Son now turned away from him, covered the cross with darkness, and poured out his wrath upon Jesus as the punishment for our sins. Isaiah 53, 5 and verse 11 speak of this. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. This is prophetic of the resurrection of Christ. Psalm 22 presents an inspired prophetic account of the suffering of Jesus upon the cross for the sins of all who repent and trust in him for salvation. And if we are filled with grief that we have rejected and despised the sinless Savior, we may also rejoice that His sufferings and His death were the, for the purpose of bringing us into the glorious presence of God. Finally, we need to examine Psalm 22 as reflecting the suffering and deliverance and praise of all who trust in Jesus Christ. This brings me to my third major point, which is our fear of abandonment. 
we should not be surprised to find ourselves crying out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? No mere human being is adequate to handle the problems of life on his own. We desperately need the companionship and the help of close friends, and we desperately need the help of God. Like David, our sinfully fallen and weak and troubled minds are easily overcome by the pressures of this world. Instead of striving to be faithful to God in the little places that God has called us to, we want to be great in the eyes of men. Instead of accepting from God's hands the things that He chooses for us to deal with, instead of trusting Him to provide for us, instead of using our feeble efforts for His glory we strive to be successful in the eyes of people. And we bask in the praise that we receive. We glory in the praise that we receive until it becomes a drug that we need just to feel good about ourselves. We quickly fall into the world's ways of thinking that we must be perfectly successful in our jobs, in our marriages, in our families, in our building of big churches, in our health, in our financial success, in our battle with sin, in every aspect of our lives. We must be perfectly successful in all these areas or we view ourselves as failures and our life as having no meaning. We believe that there cannot be any problems. There must not be any problems. And if there are any problems in our lives, we must fix them. We must hide from them. Or we must make them go away immediately. We must fix ourselves and we must fix everyone around us whether they want it or not. But we soon discover that we are lucky to be able to handle even one area of our life to the standards of success that we ourselves require of ourselves. And while we may be praised for our great performance at work or in some other area of life, we have had to sacrifice everything else to get it. Frequently that means that we have sacrificed our marriage, we have sacrificed our relationship with our children. We have sacrificed our relationship with God. We have sacrificed everything else to get that one thing we want. And even if no one else knows it, we know just how bad things are. And we are crushed by it. Yet we are unable to admit it. Instead of viewing ourselves as sinners saved only by the grace of God, we set up standards for ourselves that no human being can ever achieve. Instead of wisely drawing our self-worth from God's eternal love of us and Christ's perfect 
sacrifice for our sins. And Christ's placing of his perfect righteousness on our account with the result that God can look at us and see us as perfect in his sight. Instead, we foolishly attempt to draw our sense of self-worth from our feeble accomplishments. And when we fail to achieve our goals, we are terrified that someone may discover that we are not all that we have proclaimed ourselves to be. We fear that our Christian reputation may be ruined or our popularity lost. As a result, we may blame others and get angry at them. Or we may blame God and walk away from Him because He has not given us all that we expect Him to give us. We may blame ourselves and consider ourselves a failure. If personal success is the only thing that can make us feel good about ourselves, we are of all men most to be pitied. But what about God's eternal love of you? What about the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you through faith in Christ? Could that possibly be a better, a far better source of peace to your heart and guidance for your life? None of us have the wisdom or strength or ability to guarantee success in anything we do. All we can do is to do our best and to trust God to work it out for good. And he says in Romans 8.28 that he will do that. Are you certain that God has every right to be angry with you? Are you certain that God has abandoned you? In one sense, you are correct, because Isaiah 59.2 says, your iniquities are separating you from God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He does not listen. Our sinful dependence on ourself and our refusal to repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in Christ, that brings us under condemnation. Instead, we ought to confess our sins and totally depend upon God for our salvation and for all things. It is our unconfessed sin that separates us from God. It is our faith in Christ that unites us into intimate fellowship with Him now and forever. This is why we must come to Christ. Receive all the benefits of His sacrifice for us and be reconciled to God in perfect acceptance by Him. Here is the glorious truth that Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and Matthew 27, 46 proclaims. God the Father placed our sins on Jesus Christ. And as a result, the Father abandoned Christ on the cross. He turned His face away from Him and poured out His wrath on Him but not on us for our sins, on Him for our sins. And because Jesus was abandoned by the Father, because Jesus bore God's wrath for our sins, 
perfectly bore it and fulfilled the punishment for all the sins of all who trust in him. Because Jesus was abandoned by the Father, we who trust in Christ will never, ever be abandoned by God. We have his eternal promise in Hebrews 13.5 in which God says to those who are in Christ by faith, God says, I will never leave you or abandon you. And God will fulfill his promise that he gave to Jacob to everyone who is in Christ. In Genesis 28, 15, God promised Jacob, the covenant head of the head of the covenant people, he said to him, Look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, the promised land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. And that doesn't mean that he will leave him after he brought him back. It means he will never leave him. Today, Jesus is the head of God's covenant people. And even though he descended into the grave, God brought him back. to face-to-face -face intimate communion with God the Father in heaven. And heaven, not Israel, is the land that God has promised to all who are in Christ. And despite whatever may happen to believers in this life, God will not fail to bring every believer into eternal, intimate, face-to-face -face communion with God in heaven. Hebrews 13.6 goes on to say, Therefore we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What? Nothing. Nothing that can shake my fellowship with God for eternity. A number of years ago, I went through what was the most unsettling event that ever happened in my life. You see, I had built my sense of self-worth on what people thought about me. And at that time, a man brought a complaint against my work. And he argued before all my friends that what I had done was wrong. I was devastated. My reputation, which was what I was most proud of in my life, was in grave danger. I wanted to run. I wanted to hide. 
I wanted to attack everything the person said about me and tear it apart. God brought me down very low at that time. And as I pondered and prayed, I came to the conclusion that if what I was doing was right in the sight of God, it did not matter what men thought about it or thought about me. It only mattered what God, who knows all things and always judges justly, what God thought about it. And conversely, if what I was doing was wrong in the sight of God, then it did not matter what men thought about it. It only mattered what God thought about it. In each and every situation, the only opinion that mattered was God's opinion, which will be made clear to all of us when we stand before Him. And as a result, I was able to calmly explain what I had done and why I had done it. And I did this without attacking the individual or questioning his motives. In the end, the vote was unanimous that I had not done anything wrong. But the more important result <coughs> was that I was no longer afraid to admit all wrongs I had done to men and to ask for their forgiveness. And I was no longer afraid of anyone or anything that they could do to me. My life truly changed in a very big way as a result of that experience. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid to admit your mistakes? Are you afraid to admit your errors? Are you afraid to admit your sins? Why? Everyone makes them. We are all sinners saved only by the grace of God. And we accomplish things only by the grace of God. Can you be open and honest about your failings? This is a way to help from people and God. Are you embarrassed when people point out your failures? Why? If you knew their lives, you would know that they have as many failings as you do. And even if they don't, what does that matter? You are God's servant. You are not their servant. They can't ultimately judge you. Only God can. Romans 14.4 states, Who are you to judge another's servants? Before his own Lord he stands or falls. And he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. And if your faith is in Christ, you know for certain that your God loved you before he ever created anything. And He chose you to be His before you were ever born. 
to be his dear child. And he has poured out his grace on you from the time you were conceived. And he will continue to do so. And Christ has suffered for and paid for every wrong and sin in your entire life. And he has washed you clean in the sight of God. Such that you are sinless in his sight now and forever. And he promises you in Philippians 1.6, He who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Everything that God allows to come into your life will be so that God may accomplish his good and perfect purposes in you and in those around you. So do not fear. Praise God for His eternal love for you and trust in Him to always perfectly care for you. Let us pray. Eternal Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we did deserve to be abandoned by you for our sin and rebellion against you. We acknowledge that we have no ability to handle our lives or keep ourselves from fear and anxiety, from discouragement and despair. We throw ourselves on you. We confess our sinfulness and we receive the perfect forgiveness of all our sins, the perfect righteousness of Christ placed on our account and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit within us. We draw our self-worth and confidence from your eternal love of us. We join with our brothers and sisters in Christ in your church that we may have the fellowship and counsel and support that we need to live our lives in faithfulness to you and with confident trust in you. All of this we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, and raised from the dead, that we might be declared perfectly forgiven and accepted and righteous in your sight. Amen.